How racist is the New York Times? Have we finally come to the point where everyone is a Nazi? Was Dianne Feinstein a witting or an unwitting colluder with communist China for over 20 years? Has Donald Trump already won the dreaded trade war with Europe without firing a shot? And is there any aspect of your life that the left does not want to control? We're going to talk about all of that and more here on the American Culture Podcast. Welcome to Episode 7 of the American Culture Podcast. I am Earl B., the creator and host of this podcast, and today I have five current topics to discuss with you that are shaping American culture. The topics include racism at the New York Times, the most egregious case of moral equivalence that I can recall seeing, DiFi's Chai Spy, the EU trade war may be over without a shot being fired, and Santa Barbara, California, is prepared to throw plastic straw pushers in jail. Plus, I have one small bonus topic that I found just a little amusing. I'm so glad you've taken the time to join us. Now let's jump into our five stories for this episode. The first is racism at the New York Times. On August 1st, the New York Times announced via press release that they had hired a new member of their editorial board, Sarah Zhang, J-E-O-N-G. Zhang is a Harvard-educated attorney who writes on current technology issues. Now, it turns out that there was blowback against the hiring by the New York Times almost immediately from conservative circles when some of Ms. Zhang's tweets were discovered, which clearly expressed a racial animus against, generally, white men. The tweets described the joy she gets from being cruel to old white men. She opined in her tweets that white people, due to their fair skin, should logically only live underground like groveling goblins. She liked to use the hashtag, hashtag cancel white people. Now these are not the most egregious racist rantings to be sure, but such sentiments would spark outrage on the left if a white male directed such tweets at any other ethnic group. Conservatives in recent days have pointed out the clear hypocrisy of the Times' hiring of Jong, with her racist tweeting background, not long after the Times had fired Quinn Norton, another tech writer from the paper, when her objectionable tweets, targeting some of the minority groups favored by the left, were discovered. But in fact, it gets worse, because it turns out that the Times knew about Jong's social media history before they hired her, and they hired her anyway. When the controversy over her hire broke out, the Times issued a statement defending their hire, saying, quote, We had a candid conversation with Sarah as part of our thorough vetting process, which included a review of her social media history. She understands that this type of rhetoric is not acceptable at the Times. Close quote. Well, okay then, let's break that down, shall we? in plain English. 
And here's, here's the interpretation for everyone out there. Quote, we understand that Sarah Zhang is a racist, but we at the Times are totally cool with that as long as she doesn't make any more racist statements in public while she's working as a member of our editorial board. She can be a secret racist, a private racist, and that's okay because it's against white men. But she understands now that although we implicitly endorse her private views, she has to keep her bigotry on the down low. Now, the New York Times can hire whoever they want. I don't care. I don't buy their paper, and they lost their credibility with me decades ago. But they have actually done us a favor here. They have provided clarity and revealed their true nature. Radio host Colin Cowherd on Fox Sports Radio here in Southern California often says on his show, quote, people will show you who they are. Believe them, close quote. In hiring Sarah Jong and then standing behind her in such a blatantly hypocritical fashion, the New York Times has told us who they are. They are unapologetic leftists who are in thrall to the social justice warriors. But we knew that already, didn't we? It's just that the clarity provided by this episode is appreciated. But there's more at play here with this story. There are a few more angles I want to, expl- I want to explore. The first is the double standard. People all across the country are tired of the double standard. They see the important people, the powerful people, the favored, that those people can make mistakes. They can even commit heinous crimes and they will be coddled, forgiven, taken care of. Whether they're Washington politicians, Hollywood celebrities, editors at the New York Times, even illegal immigrants, they can do no wrong. But the American middle class, the people who are working their butts off day in and day out, to make a life for themselves and their families, they know that if they make a single mistake, they could lose everything. If they get popped on a DUI or fail a drug test, if they fudge their taxes or make a pass at a coworker that isn't welcome, or if they tell the wrong joke in front of the wrong person at work or on Twitter, they will lose their job. They'll lose their house they'll lose their social standing in the community, they will will lose everything. You look at the Tim Allen example. Tim lost his TV show not because he did did anything wrong, but just because he had gotten too successful poking fun at the left. Roseanne Barr, and I am not in any way a fan of Roseanne Barr, she lost her show for one offensive tweet aimed at Valerie Jarrett, advisor to Barack Obama. The New York Times' defense of their new editor is just one more example of the double standard in play in America today. And the amazing thing is that the folks on the left can't see it, or they claim they can't see it, and they are mystified by the popularity of Donald Trump. But this is how you got Trump. You created a divide in this country, and you put yourself on one side of the divide and average Americans on the other side of the divide. Obama called those Americans bitter clingers. Hillary called them deplorables. But Donald Trump stands with us on our side of the cultural divide. And for that, the American people are very grateful. 
Another angle I want to look at is Ms. Jong's uh, personal history. She was born in the country which we now know as South Korea. Okay? And it's interesting that very recently in the news, in the last several days, uh, it was a large, a big story when 55 small boxes containing the remains of American servicemen who died during the Korean War were returned to American soil. Now, I don't know, because I don't know if we know exactly whose remains were returned, but it was an important moment. And I don't know how many of the soldiers who died in that conflict and who just now came back to their home country, I don't know how many of them were white males, but I'm going to bet that the vast majority of them were. Okay, and those white males died, okay, fighting Korean communists who were acting as proxies for Chinese communists who sought to enslave Sarah Zhang's parents or maybe sought to enslave her parents' parents. I don't know how old her parents are. There would be no country of South Korea without those white men who flew or went on ships halfway around the world to fight communism and to save the freedom of the people we now know as the South Koreans. Without those men, without their sacrifice, there would be no South Korea. There would just be the People's Republic of Korea, the entire peninsula under the brutal control of a communist dictator. Now, this country, with all of our awful white men, took Sarah and her family in, gave them a home, provided Sarah with a world-class education at UC Berkeley and Harvard Law School before she was even a citizen so that she could turn around and be critical of the country who gave her essentially everything she has. Maybe it's just me, but I feel like she should just be a little bit more grateful and perhaps a little bit more self-aware. And the last angle on this story that came to mind for me was that of uh, the Times publisher, a gentleman by the name of A.G. Sulzberger, grandson of the famous Punch Sulzberger. On July 20th, A.G. met with President Donald Trump at the White House, and he took the president to task over Trump's practice of calling some in the news, the news media, enemies of the people. Sulzberger told the president that his use of inflammatory language could lead to violence. And he was trying to impress upon the president the importance of civility in public debate and in public discourse. And then 10 days later, A.G. Sulzberger and the Times hires and defends the hiring of a woman who has a history of using, wait for it, incredibly inflammatory racist language in public discourse. Because there's one set of rules for them and another set of rules for the rest of us. The second topic I want to hit today is what I'm calling the most egregious case of moral equivalence I can recall seeing. In Los Angeles, a modernized theatrical production of The Diary of Anne Frank will reimagine the Jewish Frank family hiding from Nazis with Latino immigrants hiding from immigration, customs, and enforcement agents. Because, of course, being an illegal Latino immigrant in L.A. today 
is just like being a Jew hiding from the Nazis in Amsterdam during World War II. And being sent to Auschwitz to be exterminated is just like being sent back to live in Mexico or Guatemala. Now, first of all, this is just asinine. If you cannot see, or if you refuse to see, the very significant differences between these two situations, then you are an idiot. Or you take your intended audience for this play to be idiots. The lawful government of a country, arresting and deporting back to their home nation, immigrants who have entered the country illegally, is quite different, on every meaningful level, from an invading army rounding up lawful residents of an occupied territory and sending them to concentration camps to be exterminated. But it is more than just stupid, bad art. It is dangerous. By blurring the moral distinctions between these two situations, you are, whether purposely or not, making rational, nuanced, and intelligent discussion of the present situation impossible. Which is almost certainly the whole point. The producers of this play clearly do not want rational, nuanced, intelligent discussion of immigration. They want people instead to have only an emotional response to the topic. And by equating American law enforcement officers to the Nazis, you get the emotional response you're after. But like the boy who cried wolf, it does eventually lose its impact. George Bush is a Nazi. Dick Cheney is a Nazi. Mitt Romney is a Nazi. Donald Trump is a Nazi. Everyone who I don't like is a Nazi. And that is what we're finally seeing today. Nazi fatigue. Because if everyone is a Nazi, then really no one is a Nazi. Lefties calling people Nazis has gotten so old, nobody even hears it anymore. But it is still a dangerous practice. As I mentioned, adopting a posture of moral equivalence between enforcing immigration laws and murdering Jews greatly distorts what is really happening today and makes meaningful discussion of immigration policy almost impossible. But it also minimizes the true horrors of Nazism. And we shouldn't allow that to happen. We need, as a society, to remember the true horrors of Nazism and the true horrors of communism and the gulags. If you tell people that ICE agents are like Nazis, People can look at those agents and think, huh, I guess the Nazis weren't as bad as I thought. We can't allow that to happen. And finally, and maybe most dangerously, calling your opponents Nazis is an attempt to dehumanize your opponent. If your opponent is a Nazi, then anything you might do to defeat them is justified because Nazis were horrible and no tactic is out of bounds when fighting Nazis. Nazis deserve to die. Nazis deserve to have violence visited upon them by the mob. And that is why this play in Los Angeles is not just stupid, it is dangerous. Third topic for today's episode is Die Fies Chai Spy. News broke this week that the man who served as the personal driver for United States Senator Dianne Feinstein for over 20 years was actually a spy under the control of the communist Chinese government. This tidbit was reported as part of a much larger story about Chinese spies operating in Silicon Valley. And it turns out that the spy was discovered about five years ago 
and that the senator fired him shortly after being briefed about the matter. According to reports, the FBI, and we all trust the FBI, right? The FBI determined that no prosecution of the spy was warranted as he had, quote, shared nothing of substance with the Chinese. Really? FYI, five years ago puts us in the 2013 time frame. The director of the FBI from September 4th, 2001 through September 4th, 2013 was some guy named, wait for it, Robert Mueller. Yep. And right after, right after Bob Mueller from September 4th, 2013 until May 9th of 2017, the director of the FBI was James Comey. So right smack in the middle of the scandal-free administration of Barack Obama, a Chinese spy is discovered in the inner circle of a very prominent and powerful Democrat U.S. senator. How hard do you believe an FBI led by Bob Mueller and James Comey worked to really find some dirt on Senator Feinstein's long-serving Chinese spy, thus embarrassing that powerful Democrat senator and also embarrassing Barack scandal-free Obama? How confident are you that a spy working for 20 years passed along nothing of substance to their controller? That's a pretty bad spy. But it gets better because DiFi is not just a random U.S. senator. Dianne Feinstein has close ties with the Chinese government going all the way back to her days as mayor of San Francisco. She has always been very pro-China. And Senator Feinstein is married to billionaire real estate investor developer Richard Blum, Blum, B-L-U-M, who over the years has had significant dealings in China. Although he clearly tries very hard to keep his activities out of public view, one can quickly find articles going back as far as 1997 questioning Blum's dealings in China and the connection to Senator Feinstein's official business. Blum is known to have traveled with his wife to China on several of her official visits on behalf of the U.S. government, and he is known to have met personally with Chinese leadership during those trips. Was Dianne Feinstein colluding with the Chinese government? Was her husband colluding with the Chinese government? Why is this not a huge deal? I am hopeful that diligent news reporters will continue to work this story to bring the full truth to light but I am not optimistic about it. Our fourth topic tonight is the very short-lived EU trade war may be over already. Now, earlier this year, President Trump threatened many of our international trading partners with severe tariff increases if they did not release, reduce their tariffs on U.S. goods. Everybody freaked out, of course. It will kill the economy. It will kill jobs. It'll kill our relationships with these countries. The sky is falling. And then they kind of hoped. And of course, if all those things happened, we'll be able to defeat Trump in 2020. Okay. So the naysayers were out in full force when President Trump uh, staked out kind of his bargaining position with our trading partners. But now we flash forward to uh, July 25th of this year, and we have a joint U.S.-EU statement following the president. Juncker's visit to the White House. 
President Juncker is, I guess, president of the European Union, I believe. And we'll read a couple of excerpts of this this statement made upon his visit to Donald Trump. We met today in Washington, D.C. to launch a new phase in the relationship between the United States and the European Union, a phase of close friendship, of strong trade relations, in which both of us will win, of working better together for global security and prosperity, and of fighting jointly against terrorism. And further down, this is why we agreed today, first of all, to work together towards zero tariffs, zero non-tariff barriers, and zero subsidies on non-auto industrial goods. We will also work to reduce barriers and increase trade in services, chemicals, pharmaceuticals, medical products, as well as soybeans. This will open markets for farmers and workers, increase investment, and lead to greater prosperity. It will make trade fairer and more reciprocal. We agreed to strengthen our strategic cooperation with respect to energy. We agreed to launch a close dialogue on standards in order to ease trade, reduce bureaucratic obstacles, and slash costs. And we agreed to join forces to protect American and European companies from unfair global trade practices, and so on and so forth. So the sky is not falling. The president has brought the EU to the table, and he's going to actually go about getting better trading deals for Americans, for American workers, for American companies, and for the American people. So much winning. And our fifth topic in today's episode is the last straw in Santa Barbara. I'm referring to a July 24th report that the Santa Barbara City Council passed an ordinance recently which permits a punishment of up to six months in jail and a $1,000 fine after a second offense of giving straws to restaurant customers. Yes, they have now made it illegal or made it legal to put waiters and waitresses in jail for offering a drink straw, drinking straw. And that penalty is allowed for each straw, which is insane on so many levels. First of all, of course, straws are not even a real problem, which we've uh, discussed in a previous episode of the podcast. Uh, jail space, of course, is at a premium everywhere. Why would you occupy your jails with straw merchants? Ridiculous. There are so many other bigger problems that these cities have to deal with. Homelessness, drug addiction, you know, real pollution, crime, you name it. And they're focusing on straws. I would be so infuriated if I was a resident of Santa Barbara. And Santa Barbara is nice. If you could afford to be a resident of Santa Barbara, you know, good for you. It's a beautiful spot. But, man, they have, they have a screwed up uh, city government, clearly. And the thing that I really find interesting, because this is, you know, it's such a lefty uh, agenda point, right? You know, we're going to get rid of the straws, you know, hooray for the environment, hooray for the lefties. Yet this, this uh, ordinance, it doesn't punish, it doesn't punish the owners of the restaurants. You know, those are the rich people in Santa Barbara, right? The people that own the re- the fancy restaurants that all the tourists go to, that all the rich people who live in Santa Barbara go to. No, the owners aren't on the hook here. Instead, it's it's the waiters and the waitresses, the wait staff, the you know the minimum wage workers, the college students, and the immigrants who are you know trying to make ends meet at the restaurant. Those guys are going to get the get on the hook 
for a thousand dollar fine and six months in jail. You know, that's real progressive government there. But all of that, that's not even the story. Okay, because now comes an August 5th report that at a subsequent council meeting in Santa Barbara, local citizens were asking the council, what's next? Because they were outraged, which they should be. And Councilman Jesse Dominguez blessed us with this response. Councilman Dominguez replied, quote, unfortunately, common sense is just not common. We have to regulate every aspect of people's lives, close quote. Yeah. He said that we have to regulate every aspect of people's lives. And you can imagine the blowback was pretty swift uh, in the press and in the public uh, discourse. And so at a later meeting, Dominguez uh, tried to walk that back. I don't think he was very successful. Here's part of his apology. Quote, I just wanted to apologize. A few weeks ago, I made a string of words in a rhetorical fashion about regulation. And they were not taken as rhetorical, and that's my fault. So I want to apologize. Don't you love that? I made a string of words in a rhetorical fashion. You can't even say, I said, I made a statement. I made a string of words. That's hilarious. But do you buy it? Do you buy that apology? Do you feel confident now that Councilman Dominguez is really all about limited government and personal liberty? Or do you think that Dominguez and so many other liberals really want to regulate every aspect of your life. For your own good, of course. Hey, once again, I just appreciate the clarity. People will show you who they are. Believe them. And to wrap up today, I do have a bonus topic. It's not big enough to be a full topic, but I thought it was worth mentioning. I thought it was amusing. There's a July 29th story at a website, thecollegefix.com, which is terrific. It, it, it keeps track, this website, thecollegefix.com, of uh, all the craziness going on in college campuses these days. So if you want to keep up with that, I, I highly recommend the site. But they have a, uh, a story up July 29th, and it turns out, and this is hilarious, that trigger warnings are triggering. And here we go. A recent study by Harvard University psychologists suggests the very thing academics use to protect their students from possible trauma may actually end up harming them. So-called trigger warnings, Benjamin Belay, Peyton Jones, and Richard McNally say, can increase folks' perceived emotional vulnerability to trauma, people's belief that trauma survivors are vulnerable, and the anxiety to written materials perceived as harmful. And further... This finding could have significant implications in the context of ongoing cultural debates about the power of language in reinforcing perceived oppression, Harper wrote. That is, if we are telling students that words are akin to violence and can cause harm, and then giving them trigger warnings to compound that message, we risk increasing the immediate anxiety responses rather than decreasing them. Yup. So, you know, don't be a science denier, okay? That's a Harvard Harvard University study. And uh, don't go out there giving trigger warnings because you might hurt somebody. So those are our five topics for today. Uh, stay tuned after this short musical bump to learn more about our podcast, how you can be in touch with us, and how you can help us grow. 
I hope you enjoyed this episode of the American Culture Podcast. If you're interested in learning more about our show, we are on the web at AmericanCulturePodcast.com. That's all one word, no spaces. We're on Facebook at Facebook.com slash American Culture Podcast. Again, no spaces. And we're on Twitter at AmCulturePod. Twitter.com slash AmCulturePod. A-M-C-U-L-T-U-R-E-P-O-D is our Twitter handle. And we're up to now uh, over 7,500 uh, followers on Twitter, which I'm pleased with. It's really helping me to get the word out about the podcast. So if you want to follow us on Twitter, I encourage it. Uh, Facebook, likewise, listen to us on the web. However you can find us, uh, we appreciate the support. If you could give us a like or a follow or a retweet or a share on Facebook or Twitter, that would be awesome. Ours is a new podcast, and you can really make a difference and help us grow our show by subscribing to the American Culture Podcast on the Apple Podcast app, on Stitcher, on Google Play, or on whatever platform you found us. If you really want to be a superhero, you could go the extra mile and write us a five-star review. I would be very grateful. All content of the American Culture Podcast is copyrighted by Earl B. and AmericanCulturePodcast.com. The views and opinions of the host and any guests, as expressed on the podcast, are solely those of the speakers and not of any other person or organization. Thanks for sharing this time with me today. Let's meet back here again real soon.